Welcome to the January 2024 edition of the Slaughter in May Tax News Podcast. I'm Zoe Andrews, PSR Council and Head of Tax Knowledge. And I'm Tanya Felling, Tax PSR Council. And yes, you've seen right. We've rebranded the podcast, although only in a small way. After almost three years, we started this podcast in July 2020. We are changing the title from Tax News Highlights to Tax News with a new logo. The new logo goes with a new podcast structure. Tax News will now sit as its own show within the Slaughter and May podcast channel. So you should now be able to subscribe either only to our show or to the whole channel, although exactly how this would work will depend on where you listen to your podcasts. The tax news content will remain largely the same. We discuss developments in UK, EU and international tax relevant to large UK and multinational businesses. But we are also considering putting together special episodes or series on particular topics as additional content for you. Please do get in touch if there's anything you'd like to hear more on. To celebrate the rebrand of the podcast, we are also publishing a shorter special episode alongside this January edition, where Zoe and I don't talk about tax, but share more personal insights, such as the changes Zoe has observed during her 20 years as a tax PSL at Slaughter and May. This January 2024 edition of the Tax News podcast covers the FTT's decision in Harbour, the Court of Appeals decision in BCM Cayman, and the CJEU's decision in the Amazon State Aid case. We will also talk about the summary of responses in respect of HM HM Treasury's consultation on the VAT treatment of fund management services, changes to HMRC's guidance on foreign entity classification, and the latest Pillar 2 related materials published by the OECD and HMRC. It was recorded on the 9th of January 2024 and reflects the law and guidance on that date. Shall we start with the cases as usual? Sure, the first case I wanted to talk about is the first tier tribunal's decision in Harbour, and this is in some ways only peripherally about tax. The taxpayer had appealed against a penalty on the basis that she had a reasonable excuse. She represented herself and cited nine FTT decisions in support of her position. Unfortunately for the taxpayer, it turned out that none of these decisions were genuine. It appeared that the taxpayer had used an AI system to help with her research, and that system had made up the cases. The tribunal accepted that the taxpayer had not known that the cases were fake. It transpired that she was not even aware that there were publicly accessible websites where the existence of a decision could be verified and a copy obtained. The case is reminiscent of an earlier US case, Mata and Avianca, where lawyers had cited cases generated by ChatGPT to the court. Indeed, the FTT quoted that case with approval, and I think it's worth reading out the key passage. Many harms flow from the submission of fake opinions. The opposing party wastes time and money in exposing the deception. The court's time is taken from other important endeavours. The client may be deprived of arguments based on authentic judicial precedents. There is potential harm to the reputation of judges and courts whose names are falsely invoked as authors of the bogus opinions and to the reputation of a party attributed with fictional conduct. It promotes cynicism about the legal profession and the judicial system. And a future litigant may be tempted to defy a judicial ruling by disingenuously claiming doubt about its authenticity. That would be quite a dystopian scenario indeed. Legal research and drafting are at the difficult end of generative AI usage cases. Harbour and the US case clearly show that using public generative AI models for legal research without carefully checking the results is unwise, at least for now, and it is likely that any useful AI system for research or drafting will need to be configured to access only an authoritative body of material. 
In the near term, we're more likely to see adoption of tools like Microsoft's Copilot, which is designed to help with everyday productivity, like drafting an email or summarizing um, the actions from a meeting. For us, I suppose this means that we won't get ChatGPT to write the content for our podcast anytime soon. Which is for the best, really, given that I rather enjoy putting it together. Nonetheless, it is likely that artificial intelligence will permeate many aspects of our lives, and it is something for business to grapple with and harness. How AI can be used responsibly to enhance our work is certainly something that we and colleagues from across the firm consider. Our next item is the Court of Appeals decision in BCM Cayman. This was published back in October 2023, so something that's sort of older news, but we thought it's worth going back to draw out two points. The first relates to tiered partnership structures. In BCM Cayman, a Cayman limited partnership sat above first, an English limited partnership, and at a later point in time, an LLP. Who then is a partner of the English LP or member of the LLP? Is it the Cayman LP, the general partner, or everyone who's a partner in the Cayman LP? A Cayman LP is similar to an English limited partnership. Its business is carried on by the general partner and it does not have separate legal personality. So the Court of Appeal concluded that only the general partner of the Cayman LP was a partner in the English LP and a member of the later LLP. For tiered partnership structures in general, the decision indicates that it will be preferable for upper tier partnerships to have separate legal personality in order to ensure that the structure operates as intended. The second point relates to the Ramsey Doctrine. Under Cayman law, the Cayman LP's general partner received profits from the English LP, or later the LLP, on bare trust for the partners in the Cayman LP to be distributed in accordance with the Cayman LP's partnership deed. Some of those profits were consequently distributed to the Cayman LP's corporate limited partner, and the question was who should be taxed on the profits so distributed. Section 6 of the Corporation Tax Act 2009 provides that a company is not chargeable to corporation tax on profits which accrue to it in a fiduciary or representative capacity, except to the extent that it has a beneficial interest in those profits. Did this mean that the Cayman LP's general partner could not be charged to tax in respect of profits distributed to the corporate limited partner? No, the Court of Appeal decided that, on a purposive construction of Section 6, the general partner was still subject to tax on those profits, essentially because, economically, they ended up back with the general partner. The corporate limited partner and the general partner's parent had entered into a total return swap in respect of those profits, and the parent had contributed amounts received under the swap to the general partner. The Court of Appeal concluded that, on a realistic view, the general partner was the beneficial owner of those profits. I think this is quite a sweeping application of the Ramsey Doctrine. Could it indicate that we're moving towards a position where concepts such as beneficial ownership, interest or entitlement are going to be harder to pin down? Or perhaps even where they could have different meanings in different statutory contexts? Well, the decision is certainly hard to square with the Upper Tribunal's 2014 decision in Bupa Insurance on the meaning of beneficial entitlement in the context of the consortium relief rules. The Upper Tribunal broadly held that beneficial entitlement meant holding more than a mere legal shell. The fact that an amount equivalent to certain dividends had to be unpaid a short time after they were received did not deprive the recipient of its beneficial entitlement to the dividends. Now, in BCM Cayman, we are told that you could, in certain circumstances, be regarded as the beneficial owner of an amount received on bare trust. 
meaning where you actually only hold a mere legal shell, albeit with an expectation to receive an equivalent amount. But in the case that was following a series of payments made by a number of entities who at each stage would have held an entitlement to the relevant amount that amounted to more than a mere legal shell. So how can these decisions be reconciled? Concluding that different tests may apply in different contexts would seem rather undesirable and apt to create uncertainty. But let's move on to another state aid development. The judgment of the Court of Justice of the European Union in Amazon was delivered on the 14th of December 2023. The CJAU upheld the General Court's decision to annul the Commission's state aid finding, but substituted its own grounds. The General Court had erred in law by accepting that the Commission could generally apply the arm's length principle in the context of a state aid investigation. The reference point for determining whether a tax ruling granted state aid was national law, and the General Court had failed to examine whether the Commission had properly established that 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 principle formed part of national law. Why then did the CJEU uphold the General Court's decision? The CJU essentially considered that the Commission's decision was vitiated because it had incorrectly identified the reference system by relying on the arm's length principle and OECD transfer pricing guidelines, even though they had not been incorporated into national law. One point I'd like to highlight here is in relation to tax authority practice. The CJU notes that the relevant provision of Luxembourg law was interpreted by the Luxembourg Tax Administration as enshrining the arm's length principle. It seems that such an interpretive practice would be insufficient to conclude that the arm's length principle forms part of the reference system because the CJAU continued by saying that, however, only the incorporation of that principle as such into national law, which as a minimum requires that that law refer explicitly to that principle, would permit the Commission to apply it in the determination of the existence of a selective advantage. Luxembourg law was amended in 2017 to explicitly adopt the arm's length principle, so the CJEU considered that it could not be applied to assess the rulings at issue. The CJEU further reaffirms that the OECD transfer pricing guidelines cannot be taken into account unless that national tax system makes explicit reference to them. This appears to be a rather different approach from that suggested by the Advocate General, who had said that, in her view, consistent administrative practice, which serves to flesh out some feature of a legal definition, that of hidden profit distributions in the present case, could be sufficient to expand the reference system to encompass all or part of the OECD transfer pricing guidelines, referencing her opinion and the CGAU decision in Magnatrol. That was also a state aid case, but relating to an aid scheme. So I wonder whether the fact that the CJEU did not follow the Advocate General on this point could be indicative of a more general reluctance towards importing concepts and tests from aid scheme cases, but I'm only speculating here. In December, we also had the summary of responses to HM Treasury's consultation on the VAT treatment of fund management. The proposal in the consultation was to codify into UK law current UK policy for the VAT treatment of fund management based on UK law, retained EU law, general principles, guidance and a body of case law. This was intended to provide certainty and clarity, reduce the scope for differing interpretations of law and case law and ultimately achieve a reduction in the amount of litigation which takes place in this area. However, the government concluded, in response to feedback, that the principles-based approach to defining the criteria for a special investment fund, CIV, outlined in the consultation, would be confusing and will not be followed. 
The government concluded that the list-based approach of items 9 and 10 of Group 5 in Schedule 9 of the VAT Act 1994 provides sufficient legal certainty and covers the vast majority of fund types for which management services should be exempt and can be extended as new types of fund emerge. So it's pretty much leaving things as they are then? Yes, pretty much. There are many requests from respondents for a legislative definition of management of a fund, but the government concluded that the position established by settled case law provides sufficient legal certainty, so there will not be a legislative definition. However, in the review of current guidance, consideration will be given to providing additional clarity on the current legal position. There were also requests for zero rating, which, as expected, have not been taken up at this time. In addition, HMRC's guidance on foreign entity classification in its international manual at INTM 180010 onwards was substantially updated in December. The list of classifications of foreign entities remains unchanged, but the guidance on the factors used to determine whether a specific entity is opaque or transparent has been redrafted and expanded. It now includes, amongst other things, a very detailed analysis of the law on Delaware LLCs at INTM 180050 and how that supports HMRC's conclusion, as set out in Revenue and Customs Brief 15, 2015, that the position reached in Anson was specific to the facts found in the case. Just to uh, remind you, Mr Anson was a UK resident member of a Delaware LLC which carried on a trade. He was subject to US tax on his share of the LLC's profits and claimed double tax relief in the UK. The issue before the UK courts was whether Mr Anson was liable to UK tax on the same profits or income which suffered US tax. This turned on whether Mr Anson had an interest in the profits of the LLC as they arose or only if and when distributed to him by the LLC. The Supreme Court held that, based on the FTT's findings of fact on the US law, Mr Anson was entitled to double tax relief as he was liable to UK and US taxes on his share of the LLC's profits. HMRC's view is that US LLCs are opaque, notwithstanding the decision in Anson. The guidance sets out the relevant provisions of the Delaware LLC Act that support this conclusion that the profits of an LLC would belong to the LLC in the first instance and that members will not be treated as receiving or entitled to the profits of a Delaware LLC. Although the detailed analysis of US law is based on the law of Delaware LLCs, HMRC's understanding is that the LLC law of other states is substantially similar and so members of other US LLCs will generally not be treated as receiving or entitled to profits of the LLC either. That is quite interesting. I'd quite like to count how many times you've said LLC there. But we must move on to our next topic. The 31st of December 2023 was a very auspicious date for Pillar 2 purposes, wasn't it? Yes, the UK's multinational top-up tax and domestic top-up tax apply to qualifying multinational groups for accounting periods beginning on or after 31st of December 2023. And similar rules also commenced in a number of other jurisdictions. HMRC published revised draft guidance on 21st of December, adding more content, including a 50-page chapter on calculating the effective tax rate, or ETR, and amending the previous draft chapters, Introduction, Scope and Administration, for the proposed amendments to the legislation in the current Finance Bill, and to reflect comments received on the first uh, version of the draft guidance. There will be more content to follow, including a chapter on particular types of entities and structures and a chapter on calculating the top-up charge. 
and in due course, a complete draft version of the guidance manual will be released for comments. The new chapter on the ETR includes cross-references to the relevant parts of the legislation, which is very helpful. That is very helpful indeed. The lack of cross-referencing in the original draft guidance made it quite difficult to read the legislation alongside the guidance or to search the guidance for commentary on a particular section. But HMRC have taken on board feedback on this and intend to cross-refer to the legislation more comprehensively in the next release of the guidance. But the handy map showing the OECD model rules and commentary origins of the UK legislation is missing from the latest version, isn't it? Oh, yes, that's correct. And that's because HMRC are updating it and adding a reverse map showing where in the UK legislation the model rules can be found. In the meantime, the original map can still be found in the June 2023 version of the draft guidance. Another welcome improvement, which HMRC says may follow due to popular demand, is a table showing the differences in the application of the MTT provisions from DTT. This would be very useful, as we know that in general, the same provisions for MTT apply for DTT purposes with modifications, but there are notable exceptions, and although these are now highlighted in the relevant parts of the draft guidance, it would be useful to have them in one handy table too. From a first read-through of the draft guidance, the amendments to the original draft guidance have provided more clarity and context, including improved examples. The new chapter on the ETR takes you through calculating adjusted profits, including how you identify underlying profits and the required adjustments to those profits, and then calculating the covered tax balance, starting with what is qualifying tax expense and then going through the various adjustments required. But that's not all the guidance that came out last month. The Inclusive Framework also published further administrative guidance, which will at some point likely be fed into the UK legislation and guidance to the extent that it is not already. What was in the further guidance and how does it fit in with the commentary and the model rules? The global rules envision that agreed administrative guidance may be issued on both the interpretation and operation of the rules to provide for consistent and common interpretation. The December guidance is the third set of administrative guidance. The three sets will be incorporated into a revised version of the commentary on the model rules to be released this year. And by this year here, I mean 2024. The OECD had previously said this year, meaning 2023, but um, they clearly got somewhat behind in combining the different sets of administrative guidance into a new version of the commentary. So that's to be expected sometime in 2024. And this would then replace the original March 2022 version of the commentary. The latest guidance includes further clarifications on a number of key areas that will help M&E groups transition into the GLOBE rules, including the application of the transitional CBCR safe harbor and the definition of revenues for the purposes of determining whether an M&E group is within the scope of the GLOBE rules. It also includes guidance for applying the GLOBE rules in situations where there are mismatches between fiscal years or financial and tax years of the constituent entities. Guidance on allocating taxes arising in a blended CFC tax regime when some constituent entities do not compute their ETR under the GLOBE rules. And the simplified calculation safe harbor for non-material constituent entities. Some of the administrative guidance has already been included in the UK's latest finance bill and draft guidance, for example, 2.3.4, enabling m and &E groups that are not required to prepare and file CBC reports to qualify for the transitional CBCR safe harbour using figures from a notional CBC report. An aspect of the guidance getting a lot of press coverage is the breadth of the anti-abuse rules for the transitional safe harbour rule, 2.6 of the administrative guidance. This safe harbour allows companies to use their CBCR rules information to calculate tax rates in each jurisdiction if they meet certain criteria. 
This is much simpler than the full calculations in order to determine if they are subject to the minimum tax rules. The inclusive framework is concerned about certain marketed avoidance transactions taking advantage of differences in tax and accounting treatment in order to get within the safe harbour. The guidance identifies three hybrid arbitrage arrangements which have to be excluded from the safe harbour calculation if they were entered into after 15th of December 2022 or after 18th of December 2023 for jurisdictions which do not permit such a retrospective anti-avoidance measure. So there is now concern from business that the new guidance adds more complexity to what was supposed to be a simplified calculation as a deeper analysis of intercompany payments and how transactions are taxed in different jurisdictions will be required to qualify for the safe harbour. And there will likely be more anti-avoidance rules to come. Further guidance will be provided to address hybrid arbitrage arrangements that may otherwise affect the application of the GLOBE rules outside the context of the CBCR safe harbour. But going back to the UK, before the Autumn Finance Bill 2023 has even been enacted, we've already had new draft legislation, namely for the new exemption from the Electricity Generator Levy, which was announced at the Autumn Statement. It was announced that where the decision to proceed with the construction of a new generating station or an increase in the generating capacity of an existing station was made on or after the 22nd of November 2023, receipts from the new generation capacity would be exempt from the levy. The legislation implements this concept by requiring that on the 21st of November, there was still a significant likelihood of the project not proceeding, which could be more difficult to evidence. The Treasury may by regulation provide for cases where this condition must be treated as having been met. The accompanying policy paper still says that the legislation will be brought forward in an upcoming finance bill. When do you think that might be? Well, my guess would be in a finance bill to be published after the spring budget, which has now been announced for the 6th of March. And until then, it seems that we will have to contend with being inundated with speculation about its contents. There was also quite a bit of speculation whether the announcement of a spring budget would mean an early general election, but the Prime Minister more recently indicated that it's not planned until the second half of this year. In any event, it must take place by late January 2025. Then there's also the US presidential election. It seems likely that under a Republican presidency, we can expect pushback against the OECD's international tax reform project and possibly the resurgence of trade sanctions. That said, for the time being, international tax reform is likely to continue as a reliable source of content for this podcast. According to an update published on the 18th of December, the OECD is working towards finalizing the multilateral convention on amount A of Pillar 1 by the end of March 2024, with a view to holding a signing ceremony at the end of June. Meanwhile, at the UN, a new ad hoc intergovernmental committee will prepare draft terms for United Nations Framework Convention on International Tax Cooperation by August 2024. In respect of the EU, we also have the parliamentary elections um, this year, which uh, could change the political landscape there. And we will have to keep an eye on developments in relation to the BFID proposal and transfer pricing directive published alongside it. So lots of things to look forward to in 2024. That leaves me to thank you for listening. If you have any questions, please contact Tanya or me or your usual Slaughter and May contact. If you would like to find out more about Slaughter and May's approach to AI, we can put you in touch with someone in our knowledge and innovation team. Further insights from the Slaughter and May Tax Department can be found on the European Tax blog, www.europeantax.blog. And you can also follow us on Twitter, at Slaughter May Tax.